All right. We are glad you're here. These lights are extra bright today. Really glad you're here. My name is Drew. I'm the pastor here uh, at Hope Community Church in Columbia Heights. Thrilled that you're here, especially if you're new or just checking us out. Or maybe you just spent a few times, not sure uh, where you're going to land. We're glad you're here, and we're happy that we get to worship with you today. Um, this is this is a very hard question for me. My uh, wife Kelly was just sharing how she doesn't like pumpkins, but I love pumpkins, and so I'm happy to eat all the pumpkin treats at our house and all the apple treats and all the blueberry treats, name a fruit maybe. <laughs> yesterday we went to an orchard, this is where the question came from, yesterday we went to an orchard and walked around and they, you know, they have a giant barn of like goodies and it's so hard not to take all of them. And uh, I saw an apple blueberry pie and I went, yep, that's we got, and then an apple pie and then an apple crispy thing. And then I was like, we can't eat all this. Um, oh, this time of year, I love it. There's something about apple cider. Um, well, hopefully you get to enjoy some of that as we enjoy this chilly, chilly weather. Um, I'm excited. We get to continue our series here. We're in a, in a series coming to an end, actually, in the next couple weeks here. Uh, and we've been slowly building um, an understanding of what um, it means to be made for God. As we think about identity and gender and sex, this is a topic that um, this week, as we, as we get towards the end of it, it has, I don't know if it's built, but it's at least established a foundation, the hope here, of understanding how we think about these things. And so when we get to uh, a topic like today's topic, which is same-sex attraction, um, and really it's a lot more than that topic, but uh, when we get to that topic, it isn't just an isolated thing. This is a topic that could feel um, like a, a one-off topic, like, hey, quick, we better talk about this thing in, in the church. We want to make sure we get, we, when we get here, we've already been thinking about lots of things and understanding the bigger, greater story of God's creation who God is and who we are in that. And so when we get here, this doesn't feel um, just like a quick, like, oh, by the way, this thing, and then move on, because this isn't. This is about people who we love and care deeply, um, and this is about our church that we love and care about, and this is about Jesus. And so um, we've been looking at these. If you haven't got to experience all these with us, we've looked at uh, identity and God's lovely authority, just where do we get our authority from, th- considering um, if scripture is the place, is God the place, is the Holy Spirit the thing that motiv- changes our motivation, is our motivation? We looked at God's creation being good. As he, how, how did he really create it? How did it first start? And today we're going to look back at that, why that's so important that we see that. Um, we looked at good news in the midst of brokenness, uh, just, just realizing there was a fall, there was a brokenness, and then looked at singleness and dating and lust, and masturbation, fornication, just sexual immorality. And this week we make our way into uh, looking at what, what does this all look like then as we look at same-sex attraction. Our hope, though, in all this is remembering there's good news in all things because of Jesus and what he's done. Not necessarily uh, because of what we're doing, but because of our good God and what he's done. Also, just make you aware, again, there's always resources we have on our website. Resources, we just posted a parenting uh, hangout. What are we calling it? Parenting hangout, workshop, get together. Uh, is a cool word for it. Uh, we just post that in our events. So there's uh, parents from Hope are going to get gather in November and just share on this topic what they've learned and uh, help each other think about it. Also today, specifically, I was excited to share with you some of the resources that have been really helpful to me. Um, and so obviously these are just up on the screen here. I don't know if it helps to take a picture of it. I'll also post these in our weekly update uh, that we get. But these are... Um, Five people that have been really encouraging to me. Uh, these are Christians who have really, really uh, 
wrestled through and worked through from, through many years in their own stories what it is to be a person who's attracted to someone of the same sex. And I've been really encouraged. And not just on this topic, really just in my faith, in their faithfulness. If you remember when we talked about marriage and singleness and we said um, a, a single person in our church can really uh, display the sufficiency of Christ, the, the, like, the goodness of, of, we really are just good in Christ alone. And these uh, people have done that. Their stories are uh, inspirational and encouraging. And so all these are their books that they've written on their story and, and uh, how they've wrestled through and how they've thought, learned about Jesus. And um, it, it really is encouraging, also really convicting. But I encourage you to check any of these out. We're actually going to hear from a lot of them today uh, in their own stories. Not necessarily even about um, specifically just same-sex attraction, but really just uh, they have some great wisdom for us and, and what it means to follow Jesus. So I encourage you to check these out. I'll send these out this week. But if you look in, these are great because they're also a lot of the story of their life. And so you get to hear within their story what God has done. I've been very, very encouraged. For me, uh, as I first, uh, when I first took steps to even think about this, because as a, uh, uh, as a boy who grew up and did not have an attraction to other boys, I didn't think about this much. If anything, I maybe this is similar to your life. The only time I heard the words Gay were when people made fun of each other. Um, it was a very, very common word for me, I think in middle school and high school, for people to use. Um, it seemed like a very other thing. It seemed, for me at least, I was unaware of people around me who were facing this. I'm sure there, there were many, but I didn't know that. It, it wasn't something that was talked about. And I really had to face it uh, when I finally encountered it with someone whose our lives were really connected, really kind of intertwined. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, I remember this, we were outside uh, and we had went for a walk and he said, I, there's something I need to talk to you about. And it was in a tone where you knew like, oh, we aren't like goofing off. We aren't just like, talk. we'd spend hours and hours talking about music and bands we liked and uh, how we'd start a band someday. And this seemed like a different introduction to a conversation. And he shared with me very quickly, didn't, there was no ramp up to it. There, he just said, uh, Drew, I, I'm gay, and uh, and, I, and I stared at him. I was very um, unsure of what to say or do. It felt like a, a wave kind of had hit me. I can't imagine what all he was feeling. I looked him. I remember looking him right in the eyes, and and not having words, which for me is a big deal. I didn't. I didn't know what to say. I. He had taken this risk and really just share his heart, something extremely personal. We were very close. I think I was one of his closest friends. And so I, I, in that moment, it felt like all of these things all at once rushed over me, almost like time had stopped and I was thinking and feeling so many things as well as I'm sure I know he was, as later he shared. I just felt lost, frozen, did not know how to react, did not know what to say. I was new in my faith. Um, and he was even part of that walk and encouraging me in my faith. New in, in reading my Bible, not even knowing necessarily what to do with my Bible. I think I was still in a season where I was like, I'm supposed to read this and then it just tells me what to do with my life. I don't, I was just discovering the, the joy of following Jesus, the truth of God's word, his enormous grace as I was figuring out and, and discovering all the sin that was in my own life and, and the grace and forgiveness that came to that and and the change that I was seeing in myself, all these things were kind of washing over me, and I was thinking about what, how would other people react to this? 
All, all kind of in this moment as we just stood there, as the wind blew over us, I, I didn't know what to think. I remember seeing people react very strongly to this. So as I was newer in, a church, in the church, I remember people reacting strongly, quickly rebuking people, using pretty harsh words. I even remember the word, I remember the word gross, because I remember people responding that way to others. I don't even know if they responded in person, but I think without someone in the room, or at least they thought no one was in the room, they would say, this is gross. Remember that, at least that, that uh, was portrayed, they were grossed out by another person because of this. I had used this, I had seen this used as the example often as the worst of sins. Kind of an assumption in a room of Christians of like, well, of course no one here is gay and so we can kind of make fun of them. I, I remember and feeling as a new Christian thing like, I don't, this doesn't seem okay, but I don't, I guess this is what people do. So I remember thinking that thing like, am I supposed to be angry at him? I don't, I don't know what to do. I also remember experiencing other friends reacting in a way where, where I should just say like, oh, good, good for you. I, I remember a different set of friends standing um, in a cafeteria and someone's sharing to us, like coming out to us really, and someone saying, I knew it, I knew it, right? I knew it first. And then it became like a competition of everyone knew it, which couldn't have also helped. There were so many things that were happening to me and him as we stood there. And then I started considering, we're really close friends. Is he trying to ask me out? I, I, don't, I didn't want to date him. He's just a great friend. What will others think about me if I have a friend who's openly gay and we're close? I loved him deeply. We were, he was this close friend. We experienced all these things together. And he'd helped me love Jesus more, helped me grow in my faith. I, do I, am I supposed to yell at him, disown him? Am I supposed to act like nothing's changed? And so I said, and all that, right, it all stirred up in me. I did not know what to do or say. I wasn't prepared. I said, oh, cool. And then we didn't say anything else. I'm sure he, in that moment, he probably read my body language. Oh, this made Drew very uncomfortable. I probably shouldn't have shared this with him. And then my reaction of, oh, cool, which says nothing, hurt him deeply. I know later as we chatted about it, hurt him very, very deeply. It all actually changed after that. I remember we walked away, we didn't really talk anymore, we walked away, uh, and I, we, our lives kind of went different ways. We ended up going to different colleges, which made it really easy to not have to have a hard conversation or to consider this. I didn't think about it much. I just thought maybe if I just ignore it, it won't be a thing. I saw him um, disconnect from other friends over this. I, I really, really hurt, hurt my friend deeply. I didn't have an opportunity to speak good news to him or show good news to him or love him or overflow grace to him. I think now as I Consider it. I think my idols of security and comfort, approval, all took over. Like, okay, what are other people going to think? What's he going to think? What? How do I protect myself in this? I was not. I was not being someone who was filled with gospel truth of grace and goodness of of who Jesus was and how he reacted. But I was just really protecting myself in that moment. It was. Um, 
it's still painful. We, we never reconcile. I love if this story was like, and then we ended up sitting down and talking through it and like, and now he's, here he is. And he comes out. Nope, we, we didn't. Uh, years later, we were able to chat a, a tiny bit and he shared how hurtful that was and still something he thought about. It's, it's terrible. I said, I, I didn't know what to do. And he said, I just wanted you to hear me and I wanted you to help me figure out how to follow Jesus in that. Uh, oh, you, oh, you're just asking me to do the thing we already were doing. It's helping each other, confessing to each other and helping each other follow Jesus. And for some reason, I, th- I thought, oh, it's a different thing now, and this has changed everything. And so our lives fall apart, kind of, or our relationship fall apart. I think this isn't that different for uh, maybe some of you have experienced the same thing. Maybe you've been on the other side of this, you've faced same-sex attraction and you said, I don't, I don't know who I can confess this to and you finally do and it goes terribly wrong. You say, I'll never do it again. I've sat with many people who said, I have not shared this because I did once and it went really, really bad. And I lost a lot of family and friends and I even lost the people I wanted to help me through this. So today what we want to do is... is um, Consider that. Consider the, these are people, right? These are uh, family members. These are friends. These are people within our church. Other people that are trying to follow Jesus, who are trying to find hope and their identity in the one thing that brings us joy, brings us peace, brings us life. And Jesus, in that one person who we know will come back and make things right. What does it look like to follow Jesus in this? And what does it look like to be a church in this? So this is for all of us to just consider and be encouraged and challenged hopefully today. And, and it's really important we go back to the story here and, and just set this scene again and the foundation again because today we're going to look at what is, how does Jesus see this? What is he, how does he look at this? Um, and it's really important because this is really where he goes as well. Um, and so just to remind us, we're reminded that God, a good creator, has created all things and he creates it for, uh, for his glory and, and with us with people that bear his image, that become these statues, these life-breathing statues that show off the goodness of God as they, they build relationships with each other and they cultivate life together. But things go bad. We actually turn from God in the garden, turn from our good creator, and we begin, we'll read later in Romans, begin to worship creation. And ourselves, we think we're wiser than God, and so things go go poorly. Things become broken, they become disordered, and we become, uh, we, we, beca- we begin to run after other things other than God. This happens for a long, long time, and within that, in that brokenness, we feel shame, and thankfully our God comes, right? We get to consider this amazing image of Mary consoling Eve and saying, it's okay, the one is, is coming, who will make these things right, who will fix the brokenness. So we looked then at what that would look like in a few settings as we see the overall picture, right, of God creates things in this good way and then things get broken and that brings shame and brokenness and, and God is the one who brings healing to that and brings us back in and forgiveness to that. And what does it look like in some different relationships? And so we looked at singleness and marriage and seeing that uh, being married is not better, is, isn't the goal, right? The goal is Jesus, and being single isn't better or worse. 
The goal again is being with Jesus. God has just given us people with different gifts and all of our gifts get to bring them to Jesus. And then last week we looked at what is just generally, what does sexual immorality look like? And we see this picture of us looking, uh, I shared a story of a man looking at a mound of dirt when the mountains were behind him. And it's, it's Jesus saying, turn around, you're missing the beauty, the, the glorious view behind you. And you're looking at this thing here that will never satisfy you. And again, it's about us putting our identities in Christ and him changing us and making us new creation and not about just stopping, stopping the thing. Just stop taking pictures of mounds of dirt and everything will be okay. You gotta turn, turn to the beauty that, that you're missing out on. And so we're gonna look today then here at how Jesus talks about this, how we see him interact with this. And I think it'll help us maybe um, frame up how to think about this and consider this. Um, and so we're starting here our, uh, in Mark 7. As we continue, really a transition from last week's discussion, we're going to continue that and look at even how Jesus talks about that same similar thing. So if you have a Bible, you want to open them, or the words will be on the screen, or turn on your Bible, uh, if it's digital. Um, we're going to look at, at Mark 7. So this is, um, this is Jesus, and, and he is uh, hanging out with his disciples and with uh, other religious leaders, and there's kind of a constant discussion, right? They're trying to trick him to say things uh, and so that people won't like him or so they have a reason eventually to kill him. Um, his, his disciples are trying to figure out who is this guy. And in all that, they're, in this, they're swimming in these waters that are a, a culture where it's saying there's things you have to do that then get you to a thing. Or they're swimming in a culture where religion around them says, do these things to make God happy, and then he'll give you these things. And so this, this, it's this very much outward focused thing. It's the same thing we do all the time, right? Have always done. If I do these things, I figure this out, then these things will come to me. And so it's this kind of outward, you kind of build the shell and hopefully that will change what's inside of you. And Jesus says, this isn't how this works. This is really important as we talk about this today. Jesus went on, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So his disciples actually ask him, like, what, what are you talking about? And he says, you need to understand that our heart, our, our central motivation out of that is what comes all of this other stuff. And so you say, hey, I want to stop being someone who's envious. I want to stop being someone who steals. That's not okay. Well, then just stop doing that, and that will make you good. And Jesus says, no, we got to change the, inner, the, the identity, the, the heart, right? We have broken hearts. In Scripture, we, they call, they're called hard hearts. They're called stone hearts. And we want to make them alive again, renewed, new creation in hearts, and that would then that would change us, so then our behavior would change. Remember that we even looked last week at this idea of attraction and temptation to lust, to behavior. It's this, in this similar motivation, right, as we turn our affections to Jesus, our thankfulness, our worship to him. It actually changes our motivation as we turn and worship Jesus, put our faith in him, he changes us, and then out of that overflows, right, the goodness of him, this, the fruit of the Spirit comes from that. But what happens is we often try to fix our own hearts. It's been a while since I shared a Bitmoji, but I felt like it was time again. This is my explanation of what happens when we try to change our own hearts. 
right? We think, okay, you know what? I got this, God. I'm going to change my heart then. If Jesus said to me, your heart, your heart is changing you, and that's what's coming out of you is what's defiling you. That's what's causing you to sin, to turn from me, to do something you're not called to do, you're not created to do. It comes from your heart. Then I'd say, okay, then I'll work on that, and I'll come back to you when I figure that out, when I'm okay. And so I try all sorts of things, right? I set up new systems, new pursuits, new identities, and if one of them could change that heart, then all the other things would come into play, and so I'd do my own heart surgery. You know you can't do your own heart surgery because your heart would fall on the ground and then you'd be taken to heaven. That's the third one if you're wondering. Taken to heaven. That's my new... (laughs) Isn't that beautiful, the hearts? (sighs) Someday. Oh, I can't wait for that day. So if we do this, but what happens is God actually says over and over in scripture, I'm coming to to change your hearts. If you remember, uh, it wasn't that long ago we looked at the Ezekiel 37 passage where God... Take, gives a vision to Ezekiel about these dry bones that were dead coming to life. Right before that, he gives another great picture. He says, uh, in Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to take these stone hearts, these, these hard hearts, they're lifeless, and I'm going to make them flesh. I'm going to make them alive. So I'm going to change those hearts. And that, that doesn't come because we stopped doing stuff and figured it out and did some surgery on ourselves. And then we go, hey, God, I think I figured it out. And he's like, cool, now you can be in, he says, no, you're not going to be able to do that. You'll actually kill yourself trying to do that. But instead, I'm going to come, I'm going to change you. And Jesus comes to change our hearts, to change our motivations. It, it feels counterintuitive. What am I supposed to do? You're supposed to put faith in him. Cling to Jesus. Open your word and know more about him. Pray with him. Pray with others with him. There's, it starts changing you and who you are. And so these things that Jesus talks about become... Uh, another life, really, as you have a new life in Christ. So if you remember some of these things he mentions, uh, he does mention in here sexual immorality. He also mentions adultery as as we're thinking specifically about sexual desire here and sexuality. This word sexual immorality here is uh, is a word that's the same word we use to describe pornography. Um, The word is like pornea, so it's like a word that we would use for that, but it, it really is a broader word. As we looked and, and researched this, it's a word that um, just generally means not the sexuality that God created you for, not the way God made sex to be experienced or relationships with that to be experienced. Now, he, he, did, he did, like like almost every time, he gives a whole list, right? Sometimes we like to, to pick out one and go like, that's the bad one. Um, but he really made a list, right? Theft is the same. What happens with theft? Do I want something? I should have it, so I take it. So it comes out of this, this, my heart feeling that and thinking that that's right. Murder, greed. It gets down to even just like envy, things that don't seem quite as bad. Arrogance, all come out of those. But Jesus does say here, sexual immorality. So sex in a way it wasn't made to be. So what does Jesus think that might be? Well, we actually get an indication of this in Mark 10, oh, there they are again, Mark 10. And he talks about the heart again. And so actually, they're going to try to trick him. The Pharisees, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, hey, um, someone wants to get divorced. What should they do? And they're hoping that he might say, yeah, yeah, let them get divorced. And they'll say, hey, it says in the law, the rules are that you're not supposed to get divorced. 
And they, or maybe Jesus will say, no, no, please, please uh, tell them they can't. It's, there's, no, there's no reasoning they can. And then they'd say like, oh, but there is some rules that say he can't. So they're just trying to give him a question so that whatever he says, someone will be upset with him, right? They're trying to show that he doesn't know. And as Jesus does often, he doesn't pick one of those. He often picks, maybe we call it the gospel way. He, would, he gives them a different answer. And so they say, Moses says though in the law, and Jesus says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. It's interesting, he says, you're thinking of a time Remember, this is after the fall when people are broken. And Moses says, hey, we got to set these up so you kind of know how to live because your hearts are not producing life. And Jesus replies, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This, this could be missed if, if we don't stop for a second. That sounds really familiar. Well, here's what Jesus says. He says, you're quoting Moses and his law. That's when we're, we're, we're broken at that point. We're not, we're, we're not doing what we were created to do in the garden. Things weren't the way they were made to be. And he quotes two passages from before the fall. It's interesting. Jesus says, I'm going to actually... So he's like uh, affirming these passages, saying, yeah, this is actually the other way. I'm looking back to the way it was supposed to be. You're kind of not looking all the way back. I'm going to confirm, yeah, these are the way God made it. So this is actually, your answer is, this is how it's supposed to be, and, and we got to figure out how to get there. And he's quoting Genesis 1.27, right? So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife and they become one flesh. He's going way back. He's not just saying, hey, I think we found, remember we found a way to kind of make this work and he's like, you're forgetting that there actually was a way that marriage was supposed to work, that relationships were supposed to work, that our our sexuality was supposed to work. There was a time when God had made a man and a woman And he said, let's join them together. And that would bear the image of a God who brings his people together through Christ to become one. He's saying, we gotta go all the way back. It's really important we don't just say, well, there's a verse that says this. I think this is really important in this discussion for us. Because we can be quick to say, there's a verse in Leviticus that says being gay is bad. What'd you say? You're a man who likes men, you're bad. And then we just keep yelling that verse over and over at someone. People um, within, within the gay community often call those clobber verses because they felt clobbered by them. There's a handful of them that we could just go, but it just says it, but it just says that's bad. It's bad, stop it. Which we do with other things, but this, this one thing feels like one that people have been so hurt by over and over. We've said, just stop doing it, stop doing it, stop doing it, it's bad. See, Leviticus says it, it's bad. I think we can take, we can learn here from Jesus in that he's saying, you're, you're not going back enough. There is a way God created this. He said, I, I want a man and a woman. And we remember if we looked, when we looked at those verses originally, actually the, the term a suitable helper that he describes Eve is actually word for the opposite but the same helper. And so I want someone 
that it's created in my image, but is like opposite, but the same still. So there is language there for, hey, I want this to be a man and a woman, and I want them to come together. That's the way I created it. That's the way I want it to be. And so there's this way bigger story in this to how we view this than just there's a verse that says you're bad. Because you could pick anything, really, and say, hey, what are you into? You shouldn't be. <laughs> um, we got to be careful, right? But I think if we look at the big picture of this, if we see how God created it and how he wants it to be, and that Christ can change our hearts as we put our identity in him, then we can see these things happen. And so when I stand in front of a friend, it changes how I see that, right? I don't just say, hey, did you read Leviticus? It's bad. Stop it. They say, oh, there, there is a story, right? And in that story, I have been given immense grace for my sin and my turning from God, and there is immense grace for all in that. I love that he looks back. Jesus does this a lot, and actually a lot in scripture we see this. It's why often at Hope, we are quoting Genesis 1 and 2, and we're quoting uh, Revelation, because we're remembering the, how, it, how it started, how God made it to be, and then it's broken now, and that one day it will be made better. How Jesus himself, this is interesting too, think Jesus himself is quoting kind of his own story. Not even kind of. Jesus is the one who invented this. He's the one who put people in right relationship before the fall. He's the one who was there to witness brokenness. So we see the same thing modeled as we read Romans 1. Romans 1 sometimes is considered one of the clobber verses, a verse people would say, hey, Paul wrote Romans 1 in order to tell those homosexuals how bad they are. But I, let's, read, let's read this and, and consider creation. Consider how this all works and consider the way he is um, writing this. So I th- he still, I think, is calling us to a certain sexual ethic, but in the way he writes this, it gives us a much grander picture. It puts us all in need of grace and it gives us a vision for what could be. Now, this is uh, Romans 1. And we're actually gonna, we're gonna be going through the book of Romans next year, starting in January for a while. So I don't want to get too much in this, but this is such a great passage to consider this idea. So Jesus does this thing, right? So he says, hey, you got to change your hearts. He says, hey, look all the way back, though. You're missing it. This is the way I created relationship to be. That's what I want you to see. I don't want you to see, hey, there's a rule and they're not following it. What should we do, Jesus? But where does life come? And I think in Romans 1, we hear a very similar thing. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. You may have heard this. We talk about this often. This is a really helpful way to, to see and understand what sin looks like. This last verse in 25, exchanging, hearing a lie that, that the created things are what's going to bring us wholeness and healing and that God will not. It's the same story we heard many, many, many years ago. The snake, Satan, comes to God's people and he says, does God really have your best in mind? Don't, don't you think you can figure this out? Don't you think you're wiser? 
Doesn't that fruit look tasty and pleasurable? That has to be what's best. Is, how interesting is that? We heard last week this language used in 1 Corinthians uh, of as we pursue sin, it often is because uh, we, we just might think there's just an appetite, and especially in our sexuality. I have an appetite, I have a feeling, I want this thing, and I should be able to, just like an appetite for food, indulge in this. And we see this call all the way back to creation. Oh, this thing looks pleasurable, it looks good. I should be able to, even if God says, it's not gonna bring you life like you think, I still should be able to do it. And so the same thing is happening as we look at Romans 1 here. We become futile in our thinking. We think we're wiser, we know more. We stop seeing the goodness of God around us and we start thinking, oh, the goodness of life is here within me, maybe within this other person. And so then we find ourselves partaking, right? It's the same image as we see yesterday as we look, we see the beautiful mountains in front of us, but we turn around and decide to take a picture of the hill. Turn around. Paul's going to encourage us, turn around. You're missing the beauty and an identity that will bring you all the things that you're looking for. Now, this might be a helpful time to consider this again. Last week, we looked at this. This is really helpful in this discussion. And so if we're calling people to uh, the relationship God has made for us is between a man and a woman, if, if they are going to become married, then w- what happens with someone who isn't in, what, in that, in that way that Christ and has described and we see in scripture? Well, I think this is really helpful. This is what, for me, was, was where I got stuck. I thought my friend just confessed to me he's attracted to men, and so now, like, is he just... Like, can he, can he follow Jesus? Can, he, can I be around him? I, and so this, this has been really, really helpful for me. I first learned this from Wesley Hill, which is one of the authors I posted up there. He um, actually came and did a se- some seminars with us here at Hope a while ago. But the first time I read his book and he shared this, and he calls himself a celibate Christian. And I thought, a celibate Christian? That's strange, because at that point in my life, I thought, you can't tell someone to not have sex. That's like a human right. Like, that's, why I'm, well, that's what I'm here for, right? As, as my porn addiction was growing in college and every, every discussion around me felt a lot about that or relationships, I thought, this is like the core of who we are, our sexuality. And he said, maybe not. And so he says, well, I have an attraction to men. I feel tempted at times to move towards putting my desire and my lust towards them and even acting on that behavior. And he says, as long as I say I have attraction to them, I see the beauty there, the temptation, as long as I don't cross that over, right? As long as I don't move into this behavior, as long as I don't put my desires in a man, that, that I'm not sinning. So he draws that line. Last week we talked about that, the line in between temptation and lust. I think this is really, really important for this discussion. You've seen that. We might see beauty around us, you would see, you should, right? We should see beauty and other image bearers around us. We should go, wow, that's a wonderful person. They are caring and loving and, and uh, we might even like physically find them attractive. It's, it switches when we go, and I'm gonna put my sexual desire, I'm gonna have my fantasies and my thoughts go to that with them. I'm gonna think about how I could use them um, or be with them and maybe even my behavior move towards that. 
So Wesley Hill in his story shares, he had, as he learned that, he found his intimacy and relationship that he thought only could come with a, another man. He realized he could find that within the church body. We're going to talk about that in a little bit here. But. And so instead of turning his worship to a person, which he was feeling the draw to, he realized he had to continue to turn his worship to God. And out of that, his behavior would change too, to worship of God. So in Romans, back to Romans, we're here, we're seeing that we worship creation instead of a creator. That's the foundation of, of the issue. That's why our hearts are broken. And then he gives an example. He says, because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. So he says, they're pursuing all this creation instead of the creator. And he says, God said, I'm going to give you that freedom. You're not going to love me. You can't love me if I force you to. And so I'm going to allow you to make the choice to love me, but that means you also can make the choice to run after other things. He says, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthy to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to their depraved minds so that they, they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. That one seems weird, doesn't it? That it's like a little softer than the other. I love that one. I yell this one at my kids a lot. You invent ways of doing evil. It says right here, you disobey your parents. No, I don't. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. So this is a passage, this chunk of Romans that we're reading right now that is often quickly gone to, and this last part of it, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, that part, you deserve death. So someone is with a friend, right? And maybe they confess it or they're seeing some, one of these things in their life and they say, you deserve death. Now, how, the manner of how you say that's different, right? And also, this is just illustrating, if we continue reading Romans, death just comes as we turn from God and not, not the one who's life, right? And so he's saying, you're running off to this creation, to these other things, and it plays out like this. This is what it looks like. These are the symptoms of you running to something else, your heart being given to something else. And often this passage is used just for the top part, right? Just for 26 through 27. This might be a passage historically that in the church, um, or, or maybe just a person that you've even experienced, say, hey, this passage, Paul's writing this just so he can really let people with same-sex attraction know this is bad, but he's writing it saying, this is one of the ways, along with this long list of ways, that as we turn from God and put our identity in anything else, things get quite disordered, quite skewed. And you know what comes with that? Death. Because there's one place that life comes from. It's not us, it's not other people. It, it's not just pursuing what we want, but it comes from a life clinging to Christ and Christ alone. It's not, it's not just figuring out the right sexual ethic and doing that and then everything's okay. It's pursuing God and, and putting your worship in the creator and out of that then will overflow 
life. I think it's really important that we um, see that all of us are in the same boat here. It says our hearts were darkened, our affections went towards things, everything other than God, and the order of things became chaotic. But let's look even like passes first. This is one of the really great things about scripture is that uh, sometimes we can just stop here and go, wow, this is, this is bad. Um, but we continue in Romans and we hear really good news. This isn't, this isn't just the gospel here. The gospel is that we are in this place. We had hard hearts. We had dry bones. We were dead. But we have a God who came. In Romans 5, we're here. You see it just the right time when you were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. That's all of us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his, his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's not long after this news that we're bringing death upon ourselves as we pursue all sorts of things in relationship, in our sexuality, in our identities. We hear Christ came while we were in the midst of that to die for us, to rescue us for this. And then we just move on in Romans 5, for if the many died for the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Exclamation point. You hear this? Back to the story again. Remember way back when I created people for certain relationships in certain ways, that all things were good, that you were bearing the image of God and you were with God and you were caring for creation, everything was good. Remember then you decided to turn and taste of that thing that felt like it was better than the creator and you did and that one act from that one person brought brokenness to so many and now this one act by this one person, our God, brings grace and forgiveness to all. That's good news. That's the gospel. I think sometimes when I find myself in this place, I forget over and over that the good news is that God comes to rescue me. I remember when I was a kid, uh, a friend and I in the neighborhood decided one summer we are going to dig a hole as deep as we could. That was like our plans. Uh, there weren't smartphones then, so we didn't know what to do. And so I would ride my bike to his house, and he had this um, little like woods behind his house, and we started digging one day, and for months we dug a hole, and it got really big, and it got really deep, and eventually we uh, like had to bring a ladder down in it, and I mean it became like our, our project, and we dreamt of what that hole could be one day. We just kept digging, digging, digging ourselves into that hole. And I remember a day we went down and, and as kind of a joke, another kid in the neighborhood took our ladder and we were far in a hole and we could not get out of this hole that we dug ourselves into. And we screamed and screamed, hey, hey, we're in a hole. And I don't think people knew we had dug a hole in the woods. Like there was no parent to be like, I should check on the kids in the hole to see if they're safe. Um, and... Uh, his dad came out eventually and heard us yelling. It's close enough to their house. And what are you guys doing? I remember him like hovering over us and like, oh, thank God your dad's here. And he said, you can get yourself out of the hole if you dug yourself into the hole. And then he left. <laughs> what? Uh, I, I am assume he was trying to like have a good parenting moment. But I don't know if that was maybe the wisest like 
we could die in the hole. I don't know what we're going to. So he left, and thankfully another kid uh, had, had been riding a bike and had known we were in the hole. It might have been the kid that took the ladder. And someone told another kid who told another kid who eventually told my brother, who eventually got my dad, and he came over and was like, what are you doing in a hole? And I was like, look at the cool hole we dug. And my dad pulled us out of the hole. We weren't really that far down. He reached down and he grabbed us and yanked us out of the hole. We were dirty and muddy. And he, but he pulled us out of that hole. We, I, I don't know how we would have got out of the hole. We had to, I don't know, standing to their shoulders maybe. At, this, is, this is the goodness of, of God's grace. He says, hey, there's a way I, I've called you to live. And, and your hearts are, are chasing other things and you're not living that way. And you found yourself deep in a hole and you're not getting out. And I'm gonna send Christ to come rescue you. And he's gonna pull you out of the hole. You had no chance in the hole. And I think often we find ourselves, even in the church surrounding that hole maybe, and saying, hey, you got yourself in there, you can figure it out. Or like, we don't like hole diggers, right? But our God says, no, I... I'm going to come even when you've turned for me over and over, even when you're still worshiping a thing that isn't the thing I've called you to. I'm going to pull you out of that hole. Even sometimes you're fighting as you get pulled out of that hole. And he looks all the way back to creation here as he references it. Jackie Hill Perry describes her some of her experience as this. She didn't necessarily have the words. This is, hits me because this is similar to my experience. I didn't have the prayer. I didn't know what to say. She said, she uh, is kind of praying to God here. She says, what you are calling me to do, I can't do on my own, but I know enough about you to know that you'll help me. I said to God, my new friend, I didn't know that the confession in my inability to please him and the shifting of my back away from the sins I'd previously embraced was repentance, nor did I recognize that my resolve to believe that he could be what no one else could was faith, but it was. Without asking my permission a good God had come to my rescue. That a great, that's a great uh, like interpretation of that passage. Without asking our permission, God came to her rescue. David Bennett describes in his experience uh, uh, as being a gay man who's trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus. He says, uh, he was reading Galatians 5.1, for it is freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let your, uh, yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. I leapt off my bed and shouted for joy. I'm free. I'm actually free. I felt liberated from the law's condemnation. My desires could not condemn me. This was radical, beautiful grace. Suddenly my identity no longer centered on what I desired sexually it's centered on Jesus Christ and his costly and abundant grace. Is that, isn't that incredible? I think there's a young man who was sitting in his bedroom in his parents' house and he read the word of God and it changed his heart. Enough that he leapt up off of his bed to say, I'm actually free now. Something that had me. This is interesting too. He, he shares a lot in his book just about this idea of I had this attraction and just because I had an attraction towards men, I thought I was doomed. I had no hope. And realizing that there's something that I can do with that attraction, I can pursue it or I can cling to Christ who will bring me hope in that. Now this brings us, I think, to this cost that comes from this. Uh, this is in Mark 8. 
Again, we hear the words of Jesus. Then he called the crowd to uh, him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny, deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me, for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The cost to follow Jesus, uh, first, Jesus, right, is, is so good. This grace is so good, but there is a cost, right? We have to walk away from all those things that, at least right now, temporarily might feel better. They might even relieve some of the pain. They might relieve some tension in our lives. He's saying there is a cost. This is really important. Um, uh, Sam Alberry, which we actually quoted a lot in our marriage and, and uh, sing, we, we're talking about marriage and singleness. He shares as he shared with people that I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a gay man, but I'm choosing to be celibate. I'm not choosing to be in a relationship with a man. I'm finding my identity in Christ and my family within the church. He says one of the first things he always gets uh, told is that seems very unfair that people would ask you to do such a difficult thing. And he says, I hear the, the word a lot. That's a huge cost, Sam. And he says, I try to say the same thing back to my brothers and sisters at church. I say, if you don't feel like your, your life is a huge cost, I, I think you should reconsider your faith in Christ. <laughs> he just says, he says, I, we all should feel the pain of this huge cost of following Jesus. Knowing one day he'll make things right he says, when someone says to me, oh, that's way too big of a thing to ask of someone. He said, I would hope you'd feel the same in your life. There's some really big things God's asking me to do because I know life comes in my identity in Christ. I think that's really important for us to consider. Jackie Hill Perry says, they've asked him, uh, she's referring to people who have said, uh, I asked God to make me straight when I am when I have same-sex attraction, and if he doesn't, how do they respond? He says, they've asked him to make them straight, and he has, according to them, denied them access to the miracle. Because God did not take a hold of their gay desires and replace them with straight desires, they have no other choice but to follow where their affections may lead. So she's telling a story here uh, in her book about that if someone says, hey, uh, then if I come to Christ, he should make me not desire people of the same sex. And when it doesn't happen, they say, well, then I guess I should... He's not doing what I've asked, and so I'm going to follow those affections. The error in this, they have come to God believing that only a fraction of themselves needs saving. They have therefore neglected the, uh, the acknowledge the rest of them also needs to be made right. It is like coming to God offering only a portion of their heart for him to have, as if he does not have the right to take hold of all, or as if he has not been withheld from him, can be satisfied without him. So she's, she's encouraging here, right, us to say, how often do we come to God and say, hey, there's this one thing I need you to fix, and if I come to you, then you fix it. And if I, come, if I give myself to you and my identity to you, then you'll fix this thing and make it the way you want it. And then it doesn't happen, and we go like, well, maybe he's not. That's just, that's just old school, like right, paganism. It's just that idea of I'll do something, and then you give me something. And we say, hey, God, there's this part of me. I want this thing fixed. Can I come and you'll make this better? Instead of saying, I'm giving you all of me. And right now in this place, until you come and return, these things might not be taken from me. And that's not the point. That's not the point. 
Christopher Ewan says this, God's faithfulness is proved not by the elimination of hardships, but by carrying us through them. Change is not the absence of struggles. Change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. I realize that the ultimate issue has to be that I yearn after God and total surrender and complete obedience. The goal isn't to say, you should follow Jesus more and then you won't have this attraction. The goal is you should just follow Jesus more. And he'll, he'll pull you through. The goal isn't, I need to stop being angry. So God, I'm going to follow you so that I'll stop being angry. It's God, I'm just going to follow you because this is what I was made to do. And in that I pray you would stop my anger, but maybe it will only come one day. David Bennett says this, short and concise and helpful, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. It's holiness. The opposite of any issue we have of sin is not the other, to, to be kinder. Stop being angry, be kinder. Stop stealing stuff, give stuff. Right? It's follow Jesus. It's cling to Jesus. And so as we um, get to the end here, I want to share something uh, as a church I think can be helpful for us as we're thinking through this and, and many things. This just brings up for us an opportunity to think about uh, lots of hard discussions and, and relationships and in, in a time when it's hard to discuss these things. Um, how do we have this discussion with a friend? How do we react? What does it look like in this season to stand with a brother or sister that confesses an attraction or, or just confesses any sin to us? What does it look like to do this? So often this is a phrase that's used when we're discussing this, truth and grace. So we, we hear in John, uh, the book of John, when Jesus comes, that he's full of truth and grace. Sometimes this, these words are used uh, in a way that says, that become polarizing. We live in a culture, right? You, you're very well, well aware that anything you say or think about quickly gets pushed usually to like a political side or to a certain category. And you say like, oh, you're that kind of person. There's this quick pushing, uh, polarizing of things. And in scripture, we hear that Jesus comes, he is full. The word actually in there means he's like complete with truth and grace. And so sometimes this gets pushed to where like, there's people who tell the truth. I'm gonna tell you how it is. God thinks this, this is right and this is wrong. And sometimes we think then grace means, well, then, there's, then there's people who like lean towards you just being nice and kind and helpful to each other. And so we might, in this discussion, just say like, hey, let's not be just truth tellers who just lay the law down on people. Hey, let's be careful we're not just being just like nice to everyone. Everything's cool, right? And I think the gospel is saying Jesus is truth. He actually calls himself truth and grace. He is truth and grace together. They actually come together. There's this incredible mixture of these two words. They're both used because he's both of these things at the same time. And so what does it look like to be someone who tells truth graciously and that truth is about the immense grace that God has? And what does it look like to be gracious people who still can speak harder truths filled with that incredible amount of grace? Those come together, they wash together as we encounter one another, walk towards one another, help each other follow Jesus together. This is an opportunity to consider how do you overflow Jesus to others? Is your truth gracious? Is your grace truthful? So Jesus shares very harsh things with people, but they, they love him deeply in that moment because of his amount of grace and love that he shares.
Maybe it's hard for you to be gracious. Maybe it's easier to just tell the truth. That could just be part of your personality. So then you have to consider and even preemptively think, how do I engage though graciously with people? Or maybe you, it's easy to be gracious and it's harder to share truth. And so you'd say, hey, how do I still know that I stand on Christ and my identity is in Christ and I can share helpful, life-giving truth to those around me? There's really good news for all. And the good news is very similar for all, right? And that Christ loves us and gave himself for us. Real quick here as we wrap up, I'm going to have the band come up here in a moment. We, we have some uh, ways. Ed Stetzer is a um, uh, missionologist, missiologist. He has a cool name. He's, uh, he, he does lots of research on church planting. He's been someone who's helped us here at Hope as we think about church planting. And he says there's kind of three things that make a church in the community and the life of a church. He says churches are biblically faithful, they're culturally relevant, and they're countercultural communities. So just real quickly, as we think about this topic, but I think just in general, are we, are we these people? And so we're going to use this idea of a stool, right? So when a three-legged stool has these three things and a church can stand and it's level and it's sturdy, but often I think we can find ourselves tipping different ways. So real quick, how do these ways look different? And so if our biblical faithfulness leg is lacking, is shortened, then we see this play out in a few different ways. We can see that truth matters, but it's not done with grace or manner. And in fact, we might even leave some truth out. We just are partially using the, the Bible's, the story of the Bible is this great story of God redeeming his people and lots of grace, lots of love, but lots of hard truth too. And how, how does that work together? But sometimes we want to leave one or two of those out, right? Parts of those out. How do we become biblically faithful People. Wesley Hill says this. He says, The Christian story proclaims that all the demands of Scripture are ultimately summons, calls, or invitations beckoning us to experience truth, beauty, and good humanness. So, are, are we people who, as our church is becoming and is biblically faithful, are we people who call people to this good, beautiful life? Or do we want to just use the Bible to make ourselves? you know, unique and push other people away? What does that look like? So the next leg then is culturally relevant. What does it look like to be people uh, who uh, are engaged though with the people around us? Because we're called to be lights, right? We're called to bring joy, to bring the good news to those around us, to love those around us. So this could, this could look like that the culture is wrong and they're all idiots. Hey, you're, you're bad, and so we're unaware, right? We're not showing love, we're not care, we're not drawing people in to true life. This could also just look like we just say, hey, everything around us is good. It's great, it's right. And so we just accept all of it. And instead, we could look this third way of the gospel way of kindness that we can learn from culture. We don't have to mindlessly adopt it or reject it, but can learn from it. I'm going to share a quote here from Rosario Butterfield. She says, there's a core difference between sharing the gospel with the lost and imposing a specific moral standard on the unconverted. It's just us understanding the people around us and knowing we can say, hey, I want you to draw close to Jesus. He's the one who brings you life. Or can say, like, the things you're doing are bad. Stop doing them. There's a, there's a way that the church can be within the world and bring good news to the world and not just condemn it. And lastly, we have uh, the third leg, just as we're thinking about our church or maybe even your own life, is what happens if a countercultural community doesn't exist. 
This is where it could just be that there isn't a community, that it's all about us individually figuring it out. This could be that we don't believe that we're a different kind of community, a community that loves people and forgives people. These are people that I, I can sit down in a, in a small group, in a Bible study, and we have people who believe things like politically different, who actually voted different, which seems wild. Recently, someone asked me, and said, um, so what does everyone, how does everyone at your church vote? I said, oh. I was like, well, I don't ask them. I don't think they want me to ask them. Uh, and I, I don't know. I, they said, I'm just curious what kind of church you are. In their mind, if a group of people meet, they must all vote and think very similarly, right? Again, pushing people to polarization, kind of. I said, I, I don't know. I know I sit with people every week who vote different ways and have different thoughts on how we can help or what's hurting our culture. And I said, that's wild. Really? And I said, yeah. They're like, huh. I mean, they're like, that didn't make sense. Like, that's the counter. We have a community that's based in Jesus and a person, not in any of those other things. And so that means we can still gather and be united and care and love and show great love for each other. Jackie O'Perry shares uh, this great theological thought, that the gospel of God saved my life, and others, he'd done the same, and in doing so, my life went around theirs could look more like his. There's something about us together, we look more like him. Who was I to think that I could look like the triune God by trying to live alone? Great thought. We're, our God himself is in three, right? We're not going to get into that today, but he's three in one the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he's created us in his image, and of course we're created to be in community. Rosario Butterfield says there's no such thing as an independent Christian. We, we need one another and have to be with one another. And so what does the church look like? And what does your life look like? If we could be biblically faithful, hold to the truths of Scripture, and believe that's where life comes from, as it shares who Christ is, if we're relevant in culture, if we actually love and care for those around us, engage with those around us, not just push them away, and then what does it look like to be a countercultural community, a community where people are not canceled, are cared for, a community where forgiveness is enormous, where grace is shown, and also a community where people love you enough to not leave you just sitting in your sin, and ultimately, right, a community that rests on the cross, that isn't just trying hard to be this, but it rests on the cross. All right, friends, we're going to end our time as we usually do um, with uh, singing, right? Being able to sing together and worship together. There's communion out in the hallway if you'd like to take communion. Uh, it's an opportunity to remember the thing we all are here to remember. Christ's death and resurrection, new life in him. And that's for all people. And we're here to sing together and, and worship and lift up his name. There's people in the back who can pray for you. If you'd like prayer, you can always give online as a response. And a few questions to consider here. Do you know Jesus, the one who rescues broken people? Where have you put your identity? It's a helpful daily question. Maybe who are your people and do you know, do they know that you need them? There's a question recently that was uh, not a question, a statement that was given actually a few years ago by a friend who uh, shared uh, that he has same-sex attraction, is tr trying to, to figure out what life looks like with that and to follow Jesus. And one day I was sitting with him and he just said, Drew, I need you to be a friend. Like I don't, if you're gonna call me to be celibate, if you're gonna say, hey, brother, I think this is what God's calling you to, um, if you're gonna call me to that, you can't then say, have fun trying that out. He says, I need you 
to be my friend. I thought, Phew. and he, there's been times where he said, hey, you're not being a very good friend. I need you to be my friend. And I thank God that he's willing to say that and that we can be friends. And then I would ask you just to consider, is your response to sit in your life or others an overflow of the gospel? How do you respond when someone shares something difficult? Maybe preemptively consider, what does that look like to be someone who overflows truth and grace all at once, all together? Let me pray for us, and we'll uh, continue uh, worshiping here together. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your kindness towards us, that you have rescued us even while we were sinners, that you have made a way for us to be right with you, and that, that you can change our hearts. God, I pray that we would be a community of people who love each other well, who come around each other, who are family to each other. I pray for those who are um, deeply facing really hard things. That you provide others to care and support and lift them up. And Lord, that your spirit would, would enter our hearts, would change us, would care for us. I pray we'd be a, a truly a community that loves you first and foremost and out of that would come all, all other things. We pray this in your good name. Amen.